Welcome back guys to the second episode of Neurosurgery Podcast. This is Dr. Apurva and you are listening to the Neurosurgery of USMLE Step 2 CK. Now, practice makes a man perfect and I am on the same way. I am trying to make the podcasts as productive as possible. Okay, let's get on to this. You listen to the questions and try to guess the answer. Okay, let's start by this one. Let's say a man comes to you with the complaint of weakness, lethargy, he is unable to hold his head up, he also has stosis of his both eyes, his pupils are dilated and sluggish to react, his respiration is shallow, he has a history of IV abusing drug of heroin, the emergency medical service personnel tried to give them intramuscular naloxone but nothing worked. There are also two abscesses on left thigh. The patient on the ABG analysis reveals hypoxia with acute respiratory acidosis. What's your next step in management? Well, rather than next step in management, first of all, what's your diagnosis? Exactly. This is botulism, especially wound botulism. Whenever you uh, come across botulism, there is always descending paralysis. This patient already had ptosis and dilated pupil. the patient also had respiratory failure and as a result of that the patient was having acute respiratory acidosis as a result of that now botulism can be divided on two types they could be food botulism and they could be wound botulism this is wound botulism common in people abusing iv drugs like this patient was already abusing heroin for that okay what's your next step in management you'll give them equine botulinum antitoxin remember this is equine that means horse derived you reserve human botulinum antitoxin for infant botulism well now your next question how many types of botulism you know there could be two types that's wound botulism and second one is food botulism wound botulism is common in iv drug abusers because the spores will be injected and they'll germinate in the anaerobic environment and they'll generate botulinum toxin in vivo the patient can also have fever and leukocytosis in wound botulism the next one is food botulism now the food botulism are furthermore divided into infant and adult type now the infant botulism usually results from ingestion of spores now this pores classically if you are studying for usmle you'll always uh, think of honey but please do remember that honey is not only the sole source of infant botulism because the spores can be in the air also so pretty much less of the prevention can be done in infant botulism apart from avoiding giving honey to less than 2 year old infant okay that was about the infant botulism which happens due to the ingestion of spores which produces toxins in vivo the second one is adult type of botulism uh, which happens due to ingestion of preformed botulinum toxin that's also called food porn botulism now this can happen from improperly canned foods which you already know by the way what's the mechanism of action of botulinum toxin exactly that will inhibit the presynaptic acetylcholine release it will cleave the snare proteins now snare proteins are also called synaptobrevin and syntaxin so it will not allow acetylcholine to release and you will have paralysis especially descending type of motor paralysis if you are seeing a patient with ascending type of motor paralysis please think of guillain barre syndrome now this thing is very important to keep in mind 
no doubt you can make a definitive diagnosis of botulism with the help of serum analysis of the toxin but before even making the definitive diagnosis if you are having high suspicion of botulism please administer the botulinum antitoxin to the patient first equine antitoxin for the adults one and human derived antitoxin for the infant botulism okay on to the next one a patient with history of rheumatoid arthritis was intubated due to respiratory failure and after intubation now she complains of decreased lower extremity muscle strength hyperactive knee jerks decreased proprioception in the feet and on rapidly flicking the nail of the middle finger elicits flexion of the ipsilateral thumb what is the cause of this finding the patient had instable atlantoaxial joint and that resulted in subluxation of the cervical vertebra due to intubation and due to that subluxation the vertebra compressed the spinal cord and the spinal nerve root and as a result of that the patient had symptoms of cervical myelopathy now remember this that during compression of the spinal cord you can acutely have lower motor neuron signs in both lower limbs this is called the spinal shock stage of spinal cord compression but gradually the patient will have spastic quadriparesis with the sensory deficits in hands and feet and patient can also have respiratory dysfunction due to this subluxation of the vertebra in the cervical region can you tell me why the patient can have respiratory dysfunction if there is subluxation in the cervical region it can compress the vertebral artery and vertebral artery is the main blood supply of the brain stem and brain stem has special nuclei which controls the respiratory center so the patient with the cervical dislocation of rheumatoid arthritis can also have respiratory dysfunction all right now what is this sign called when you flick the middle finger that will elicit the flexion of the ipsilateral thumb this is also called hoffman sign usually seen in upper motor neuron lesion just like pronated drift which is also seen in upper motor neuron lesion now which category of patients are at increased risk for atlantoaxial subluxation if the patient has rheumatoid arthritis now you should know this because before intubating the patient with rheumatoid arthritis if you do not stabilize the cervical spine it can worsen the subluxation and produce cervical myelopathy so if the patient of rheumatoid arthritis has elevated inflammatory markers or rapidly progressive erosive disease or if the patient already has peripheral joint subluxation like if the patient is having severe hand deformities you should always be alert by intubating the patient so you have to stabilize the spine the cervical spine and then intubate the patient remember i am talking about cervical spine stabilization the same principle applies when the patient has cervical trauma so if you are already um, expecting cervical trauma and you want the patient to be intubated one person has to stabilize the cervical spine and the other person has to intubate without much of the neck extension the same features applies if the patient has rheumatoid arthritis and atlantoaxial subluxation okay moving on now what are the clinical features of atlantoaxial subluxation in rheumatoid arthritis the earliest symptom is cervical pain that radiates to the occiput and there'll be slowly progressive spastic paralysis in all four limbs 
both upper limbs and lower limbs and there'll be hyperreflexia with sensory changes you will get upper motor neuron signs including babinski sign and there'll be hoffman sign in which when you flick the middle finger there'll be ipsilateral thumb flexion and adduction now this is uh, no doubt upper motor neuron sign the hoffman sign but it is very non specific and can be also seen in normal patient okay so how will you diagnose and manage atlantoaxial subluxation diagnosis is by urgent mri of the cervical spine which will demonstrate the sub separation of c1 and c2 and how will you manage you have to give them stiff surgical collars and that will also require neurosurgical interventions like you'll have to fix the cervical spine that's also called cervical fixation okay on to the next one let's say a man comes to you he fell head first down a flight of stairs and he landed on his head directly he did not lose consciousness his vitals are stable as of now he can follow simple commands he is alcoholic uh, rigid cervical collar is placed and he is uncomfortable due to that cervical collar and asks to remove it now before removing it what's your best next step in diagnosing to rule out cervical spine injury and the answer is ct scan without contrast now ct scan is preferred to test cervical spine injury x ray is not that sensitive it has only sensitivity of 52% but ct scan has sensitivity of 98% so how will you come to know that this patient requires ct scan of the cervical spine now if you have to remember these things there if there is obvious indication like if the patient is already very high risk like if the mechanism of trauma was severely high and if that involved the cervical spine then definitely you will do the ct scan of the cervical spine and second one is trauma causing concomitant closed head injury so if you see head injury trauma and severe high energy mechanism trauma then obviously you will order cervical spine injury but if the presentation is subtle like if the patient is low risk and has suffered from less severe trauma mechanism then you can use the nexus criteria to determine whether or not this patient requires ct scan of the cervical spine Nexus is National Emergency X Radiography Utilization Study and it laid down five criteria. Now you can remember this five criteria is with the mnemonic NSAID, N for neurologic deficit, S for spinal tenderness, A for altered mental status, I for intoxication and D for distracting injury. If you have any one of this out of NSAID, you got to do CT of the cervical spine. if there is none if there is none out of nexus criteria then ct cervical spine is not required then you can do neurological examination and that neurological examination is sufficient to rule out cervical spine injury and then you can allow the patient to remove that cervical collar okay so of the case which we talked about the patient was alcoholic so patient was already intoxicated and the patient was somnolent that means he was having altered mental status so that was already two criteria then definitely you got to do ct of the cervical spine now what's distracting injury distracting injury means uh, if there is any severe injury in other body part which you know drives away your attention that okay let's say a patient comes to you and he is having severe open fracture of the tibia so that might distract you and that might take away your attention 
to think about cervical spine injury so nexus criteria already has distracting injury if you find any distracting injury then definitely you'll have to do the cervical spine imaging okay next question when will you do flexion and extension x-ray of the lateral view of the cervical spine you'll do this when you uh, suspect ligamentous injury but before doing this please make sure that the patient is not having cervical spine fracture the patient is alert and cooperative you cannot do this flexion extension x-rays in patient who is already somnolent or intoxicated or you have not ruled out cervical spine fracture because this can aggravate the injury okay moving on to the next one let's say a patient comes to you with a complaint of left-sided throbbing headaches and right-sided weakness he's also having right-sided pronator drift and on ct scan there was partially calcified round extra axial mass compressing the left frontal lobe the mass appeared dural based and homogeneously enhanced on post gadolinium mri then what's your next step in management i know this might be a little difficult because i cannot show you ct scan but still the hint is dural based mass and that is homogeneously enhanced on gadolinium now what's what's gadolinium by the way if there is anything which is very vascular that will be enhanced by giving gadolinium on mri okay so this is probably meningioma and your next step in managing is surgical resection okay these are benign primary brain tumors but they can often cause headache seizures and focal neurological deficits due to mass effect so complete surgical resection is recommended all right by the way just off topic question if you find calcification on meningioma what type of calcification is that is it dystrophic or metastatic yeah, that's dystrophic because metastatic calcification happens when the serum calcium level are high this is dystrophic calcification can happen in any damaged tissue because their calcium can deposit that's dystrophic calcification okay how will you diagnose and manage meningioma now diagnosis is obviously neuroimaging that can provide you enough clues for diagnosis but the definitive diagnosis is only done by histopathological confirmation and the treatment of choice is obviously complete resection and this leads to cure in most of the individuals okay next on the list let's say a man comes to you after falling head first onto the road now he's unable to move his arms and legs he was placed on a rigid cervical collar and he was transported to the hospital and en route he is now having two large bore iv needles for fluid resuscitation his pulse is 100 respirations are 14 per minute the patient is alert neurologic examination shows intact cranial nerves um his blood pressure is 120 over 80 but the ct scan of the cervical spine shows burst fracture of the c5 with impingement of posteriorly displaced fragments onto the spinal cord the pinprick and the temperature sensation are absent below the level of clavicles now what's your best next step in management now before this question what information did you derive from primary survey now primary survey is important in any trauma patient in the primary survey you do a b c d e a for airway what about airway in this patient here the airway is okay the patient is alert 
he was little bit anxious but patient's airway is okay what about breathing breathing is also okay because bilateral breath sounds are okay and his cardiopulmonary examination was unremarkable what about circulation circulation is also okay because his blood pressure is 120 over 80 now the d1 is disability now disability the patient this patient is having disability because he is not able to move his arms and legs that means the patient is already having quadriplegia and therefore needs detailed neurologic examination the e part in the primary survey is exposure where you need to expose the patient to rule out any occult injury so this is what you derive from primary survey a b c are okay the disability shows quadriplegia and since the patient is having uh, quadriplegia you need to do further more detailed neurological examination now what is your conclusion from the neurological examination as i said the patient is having loss of pinprick and temperature sensation below the levels of clavicles but the vibratory sensations were okay and he was also not able to move his arms and legs then what's your conclusion from this this sounds like anterior cord syndrome okay now if there is c5 burst fracture and the posteriorly displaced fragment can impinge the spinal cord so it can damage the anterior spinal artery that can lead to anterior cord syndrome now this anterior cord syndrome will damage the anterior horn cells and some part of the corticospinal tract so patient will have bilateral loss of motor control and since this damages also the spinothalamic tract there'll be bilateral loss of pain and temperature and crude touch below the level of lesion okay so that is what you derived from neurological examination now due to this neurological examination what problem can happen in the bladder the patient can have neurogenic bladder okay so if there is neurogenic bladder that can lead to urinary retention and due to urinary retention the bladder will get distended and that can give you bladder injury so actually your next step in management is bladder catheterization because you ruled out everything his primary survey was okay and the detailed neurological examination showed you anterior cord syndrome now it's important to protect the bladder so you do urinary catheterization to prevent the bladder distension of course if anybody is having spinal cord injury you also give them iv steroids so you can also consider giving iv steroids to this patient okay now does this patient require nasogastric tube insertion now pretty much not it is typically used in gastrointestinal decompression like if the patient is having ileus or bowel obstruction or if you want to do administration of medications or nutritions like if the patient is unconscious or patient is not having the ability to swallow this patient is already alert and has the lesion below the cervical spine so patient would be able to swallow and right now he is not having any signs of bowel obstruction or ileus so nasogastric tube insertion is not the best step now on to the next one let's say a man comes with injury to his right shoulder during basketball game um, he was trying to block a shot while his arm was abducted and externally rotated and that arm was forced backward by an opposing player 
On examination, you see asymmetry of the right shoulder compared to the left one and the right arm is held in slight abduction and external rotation. What's your diagnosis? This is pretty much anterior dislocation of the humeral head and that's the most common shoulder dislocation. What's the mechanism of injury of this dislocation? Usually anterior dislocation happens when there is blow to abducted, externally rotated and an extended arm. Okay, like just like you're blocking a basketball shot. What will you see on x-ray? If you notice the x-ray on anterior dislocation of the shoulder, you will clearly see that humeral head is outside the glenoid fossa and it will be below the coracoid process. So that's the anterior dislocation of shoulder and what complication will the patient likely develop of this injury if left untreated? The patient will not be able to abduct the shoulder because of anterior dislocation of the shoulder. You can damage the axillary nerve. And axillary nerve, as you know, is responsible for the abduction of the arm. So patient can have shoulder abduction weakness. Okay. Now, do you know which is the most commonly dislocated joint? The same one. That's the glenohumeral joint. The shoulder joint is the most commonly dislocated joint because there's a shallow articulation between the humeral head and the glenoid fossa of the scapula. So, the shoulder dislocation can happen anteriorly, inferiorly, posteriorly, but the most common one is anterior. That's because of less support on the anterior side. Now, if you could summarize for me, what are the clinical features of anterior dislocation of the humerus? If there is anterior dislocation of the humerus, the deltoid on the affected side will become flattened. And due to that, there will be protrusion of the acromion process. The anterior axillary fold will be full because of the humeral head is displaced into this location. The patient's arm will be abducted and externally rotated. And due to this anterior dislocation, the axillary nerve can be commonly injured. So the patient has weakness in teres minor and the deltoid muscles. Now the axillary nerve also supplies the skin overlying the lateral shoulder. So patient will also have loss of sensation in the shoulder badge distribution. Alright. Can you tell me how the long thoracic nerve can be damaged? If there is a laceration in the axillary region or if a patient is undergoing axillary lymphadenectomy, then the long thoracic nerve can be damaged and that can lead to winging of scapula. What about radial nerve? How a radial nerve can be damaged into the arm during mid-shaft humeral fracture? Okay, you remember the arm mnemonic, right? Axillary nerve can be damaged in the surgical neck of humerus fracture. If there is mid-shaft fracture, then the radial nerve can be damaged. And if there is supracondylar fracture, then the median nerve can be damaged. That's how these nerves can be damaged. Okay, moving on to the next one. Let's say you have a patient coming to emergency department due to worsening headaches. He already had a history of episodic right-sided headaches that is getting worse and worse since past six months. While he was at the emergency department, his headache got gradually worsened to severe pain over the next several minutes. He is also now having vomiting. The patient is now somnolent and pretty much going into comatous state. His medical evaluation was normal a year ago. 
His blood pressure now is 150 over 90, pulses are 64, respiration rate is 14 per minutes. He withdraws all extremities to painful stimuli. His left-sided deep tendon reflexes are increased. There is no neck rigidity. What do you think would be the underlying cause? Now, this is a pretty much vague question, but I'll give you the option. Is it due to embolic stroke? Is it hypertensive bleed? Is it dural venous thrombosis or is it AV malformation? Now let's rule out each one of them. Can this be embolic stroke? No, this cannot be embolic stroke because if it were embolic stroke, then symptoms should be maximal at the onset, not progressive as in this case. And on CT scan, you will see multiple vascular territories that are affected, leading to variety of neurological deficits not single neurological deficit like the this patient already had um, left-sided deep tendon reflex which were increased if it were embolic stroke then you can find variety of neurological deficits with maximal symptom at the onset so you rule out embolic stroke also this patient didn't have something called as atrial fibrillation his rhythm was okay i mean he didn't have irregularly irregular rhythm so that pretty much rules out cardioembolic stroke now this this can be hypertensive bleed can this be hypertensive bleed no his prior examination was normal year ago so hypertensive bleed doesn't come suddenly it requires a year long history a years long history now can this be dural venous sinus thrombosis Now this patient rapidly progressed to coma. He came to emergency department with just headache but now he is very difficult to arouse. So rapid progression to coma is kind of not usually seen in dural venous sinus thrombosis and also dural venous sinus thrombosis has history of hypercoagulability like pregnancy, infection, malignancy or head injury. So you rule out dural venous sinus thrombosis. so you are left with av malformation now av malformation is common in young patient now this patient had history of right sided headache he is having now nausea vomiting and he rapidly deteriorated to the comatose state that means he had intracerebral hemorrhage all right so this pretty much explains about av malformation what is av malformation by the way AV malformations occur when artery directly anastomoses with the veins without interposed capillary you should have capillary between arteries and veins so if there is no capillary the high pressure of the artery will directly go to the veins and this will predispose the patient to have aneurysm formation and that aneurysm can spontaneously bleed so that's AV malformation okay next one women with a history of motor vehicle accident 7 years ago and she sustained a whiplash injury 7 years ago now on examination she is having atrophy of the hands with loss of pain and temperature in both upper extremities but the light touch vibration and position senses are intact on mri you see a dilated cavity in the cervical region what's your diagnosis this is a giveaway this is what syringomyelia okay you see intramedullary cavity in the cervical region what about treatment how will you treat the syringomyelia you need surgical intervention like you need to do a shunt placement surgery now can you tell me how whiplash injury can cause syringomyelia whenever there is whiplash injury there is disruption in csf drainage so csf will kind of get accumulated there and gradually 
create a fluid filled cavity over the ears and that fluid filled cavity will enlarge and compress the surrounding tissue if it is compressing the anterior commission you'll have commissure you'll have loss of pain and temperature in the upper extremities but if it expands and compresses the anterior horn you can also have lower motor neuron signs like atrophy of the hand what are some causes of syringomyelia what's the most common association of syringomyelia that's carry one malformation what's carry one carry one means you herniate cerebral tonsils from foramen magnum one means only one structure you are herniating only cerebellar tonsils carry two means you are herniating two structures both tonsils and vermis so most common association of syringomyelia is carry one malformation by the way what's association of carry two malformation that's lumbosacral meningomyelocele okay okay facts apart we were on the causes of syringomyelia so number one is carry one malformation then you can also have syringomyelia as a sequelae of meningitis some inflammatory disorders tumors or trauma like whiplash injury anything that will disrupt the csf outflow and can produce a localized fluid filled cystic cavity in the cervical region of the spinal cord can produce syringomyelia all right Okay, let's say a 45-year-old man comes with high-speed motor vehicle accident and although his airbags were deployed, the patient's leg was smashed against the front console. He was placed on a rigid cervical collar and he is now transported to the hospital. He is receiving IV fluids and route. His blood pressure is 140 over 90, pulse 105, respiration 14. Patient is alert, oriented and he is having leg pain. Please listen this. Very carefully bilateral breath sounds are equal with no chest tenderness cardiopulmonary examination is all right the patient is having right-sided leg pain he is having grossly deformed leg with exposed broken tibia capillary refill time is less than two seconds which additional imaging is required at this time that is CT scan of the cervical spine by the way, this was a trauma case. What conclusion did you derive from primary survey? What about airway? The patient is alert, intact, cardiopulmonary examination was unremarkable. So that means his airway and breathing were normal. Blood pressure is 140 over 90. That means the patient is hemodynamically stable. So you have done A, B, C part of the primary survey. Now moving on to the D, that means disability. You already see a cross disability of the broken tibia but that's a distracting injury this is a very high mechanism of velocity trauma so probably the patient might also have concomitant cervical injury that that's why nexus criteria involved the distracting injury out of that NSAID thing remember that NSAID N was mm -hmm, neurologic deficit S for spinal tenderness a for altered mental status, I for intoxication and D for distracting injury. So this patient had distracting injury. That means, oh, comminuted fracture of the tibia and the fibula. Mm -hmm -hmm. Distracting injury. That means you need to do CT cervical spine. Okay. By the way, after primary survey, all trauma patients need adjunct imaging. You need to do portable chest X-ray. You need to do pelvic X-ray. You need to do fast scan and you also need to do cervical spine imaging 
and that cervical spine imaging whether you'll do or not is derived from the things which we talked about like if it is high energy uh, injury or if the fall is from more than 10 feet apart of the or the patient already had closed head injury then you will definitely do cervical spine injury but if the high risk stage is not present the patient is low risk of cervical injury like then you have to descend from the nexus criteria of the NSAID and this patient already had distracting injury so you need to do CT cervical spine first why would you do CT cervical spine before that's because obviously this patient might need need surgical intervention this patient had open fractures so the patient might be needing irrigation and fixation so before you intubate the patient you better know that whether or not this patient is having cervical spine injury oh you might be worrying about this patient had open tibia and fibula fracture what you you'll not do anything about leg first but first of all you need to stabilize the spine otherwise what's the fun in fixing the leg if if all of your four extremities undergo quadriplegia so spine is important cervical spine is important first so for right leg if you are if you are worried about right leg that patient was having grossly deformed leg with broken tibia but his capillary refill time was less than 2 second so what's your next step in management after doing everything about cervical spine about the leg then you have to do complete pulse examination and measure the injured extremity index okay so if you do the pulse examination you will come to know whether the vascular injury is present or no and if you conclude that there is vascular injury with the injured extremity index injured extremities index um, is nothing but you take the distal pulse uh, after the injury and you take the proximal pulse at that means the blood pressure you take the distal blood pressure let's say with the dorsal spedis or posterior tibial or radial or ulnar artery and you divide it by proximal blood pressure let's say brachial artery and you divide them and if the ratio is less than 0.9 that means there is indication of occult vascular injury so anyway if you if you get an uh, clue about vascular injury in this broken tibia patient then the next thing is ct angiography okay i hope this steps do make sense okay we'll talk about this spine injury in next podcast as well but i think this is enough for this podcast thank you for listening you can listen this podcast on youtube on spotify on google podcasts um you can always contact me on instagram you can leave a message there i can reply you you can always comment here below in youtube i'll be happy to help you we also provide usmle step 1 and 2 ck tutoring one on one live let us know if you want them thank you for listening stay happy merry christmas for today if you are listening it today that's 25 december 2020 bye bye and take care